obviously working through this idea of all spiritually functional, this idea of a healthy church. And, and so these all tied together. And, and uh, I had thought originally to preach uh, Titus 2, 1 through 10. And then I thought I better split it into two. And you can tell it's now being split into three as we work through it. But this is a critical component of Titus as, as they're looking forward to what it takes for a, for a church to be healthy and this idea that everyone in the church must be spiritually functional. And so looking for an introduction, I was thinking about another way to, to, to view it. And I, I put down, isn't it amazing how you can hurt your foot and it can then taint your enjoyment of a great meal? You can be at a high-end steak restaurant and you'll be thinking about your foot. And then you'll be talking about your foot. So you're influencing everyone else you're eating with. In other words, something could be wrong that has nothing to do with your belly or your mouth and it ruins the meal. Or, or if you have a bad day at work, Maybe you have some tension between you and a coworker, and it can mess your weekend at home. And I know it never happens at City Life, but maybe you argue with your spouse, and then it affects how Monday at work goes. The reality is this, when something's off, it alters everything, maybe not drastically, but it has an effect. And, and I say that, and the same as the illustration two weeks ago, as we looked at a team and how everyone had, had to function on a team, the point is this. Your obedience to God's word, your following through on what he says in the context that he's saying it, has an effect on the church. That a healthy church takes you, that it involves you, that as we function and work uh, and, and reach and, and are, are an evangelistic outreach as we preach the truth and the gospel, that takes all of us. And so here is Paul writing to Titus to instruct Titus who is, by the way, establishing and strengthening the churches on the island of Crete. Uh, he's making sure that these churches are healthy churches, and that requires there to be a healthy congregation, all that are functioning spiritually, or that are all spiritually functional, that are acting and functioning as God would have them to do. And so chapter 2, as we talked about two weeks ago, begins with a transition we have condemned false teachers, and so from false teachers, this, this plague that's coming in the church, now Paul shifts the instruction to what he should be teaching the church to do, and it's focusing on things that become sound doctrine, which when he talks about speaking, he speaks to the ordinary function in life. He's not talking necessarily, not necessarily excluding it, but he's not saying, make sure you're preaching sermons like this. He's saying, make sure you're talking about this amongst the people working through this so that all of the church is growing in Christ and functioning as his light in the world. I don't want us to lose sight as we dive into the details of this chapter, as we go through this, that we start getting waylaid in the details and forget the purpose. The whole purpose is that as God's children, we are the light that he wants us to be. And so as we are shown what God desires us to be, as we're given the, the roadmap, as we walk that journey, that's going to allow us to be what he's called us to be. We're called to be ambassadors here. We're called to be a light. We have a purpose that's not just existing here on earth. Our purpose is to be an outreach for him. We're left here to share the gospel, to spread his truth. And so we began our instruction with the older men. And as we talked about, it's those 50 and above. And I'm just happy to still be in the younger men category for a few more years, not many. Uh, and then that carried forward, as we talked about, to the older women whose charge 
close with this idea of being teachers of good things as a general principle. And it's fascinating because in the center of this, we begin with the older men, older women, and now we move to younger women, and we're going to end with the younger men. And actually, he encapsulates it with something that we all deal with, and that's working. And so you're going to have this idea of what you can do at work. And so the women move from this idea of what they should be to what they should be teaching. And what happens now is Paul takes that idea of teaching the good, what should be good, and zeroes it in on their mentorship, their teaching toward the younger women. And it says there uh, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And there's two so that statements there. Older women are to teach so that younger women learn, and younger women are to learn and do so that God's word is not undermined, and, and on the positive side, that they shine a light on God's truth. And so it's talking about testimony. Older women are instructed to be spiritually healthy, with a primary reason being that they may teach, training the next generation of women in the church to be sober. And, and that kind of ties into the idea of, of teaching, uh, behaving well, acting well, linking back to what they would know. And then they're beginning in the Greek, the key word, the key feature, uh, the, the biblical principle is this idea of love. What is the first thing that they're really diving in and teaching is this idea of love. And it's a characteristic, if you remember, that the older men were admonished to have as well. And so here, as the older women teach the younger women, so I want you to see the connection to some of these characteristics. However, with the older men, there was this kind of, it was a different look at love. This is a very functional, active love manifested specifically, though, in the sphere of their family. And if you're going to get something at the end of this, is that a lot of the instruction to the younger women is going to drive them to prioritize their home. And so they're called to love in the sphere of their family, beginning with their husbands. Married, younger, which is under 50, women are to be encouraged to love their spouse, a love that is active, that takes energy, that takes sacrifice, a love, and I want us to understand this, that's not a suggestion from God. It is commanded. And that means when you have a command that not loving is not, not just missing or wishing you had, oh, I wish I could love my husband. Actually, it's a sin. You're breaking God's commandment. So it is a command to love. Commanded, no doubt, because it's often hard to love husbands. And I put in parentheses the beasts that they are, right? They're, we all can amen that one, right? At least the women can. Um, it can be difficult. You see, often circumstances are not always conducive to being loving. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But loving, you are commanded to be, which I hope gives us all a pause for a second as, as a whole congregation. Have we displayed love at all times, or has our love been conditioned to the moment or the circumstance? Yes, you can love someone who's serving you, taking care of you, buying you things, doing things like that when everything's rosy, but have you loved through all the moments and circumstances? This, by the way, is not making compromise or condoning of bad or frustrating behavior a way to be loving. You're not loving someone when you make sin right. 
And so women are not called to just love their husbands no matter what they do for what they do. You are instead going to be loving, displaying love through and despite bad and frustrating behavior and circumstances. You're not condoning it. That's not love. But you are to continue to love in spite of or through that. And just in case husbands are thinking, wow, man, the wife has to love me. No matter what I do, she's got to work through this. She's got to make this happen. Uh, we just finished a journey through First and Second Peter, and I do want to remind you that you are also commanded to love sincerely and sacrificially, or your prayers are hindered. So just to put it in context, as Paul is writing, so Peter the, the apostle emphasized the love from the husband. Uh, Paul is emphasizing it here from the wife uh, to the husband, and we see this idea that it's to be a real love a love that's not conditioned on fleeting feelings and specific circumstances, a firm love that understands the sacrifice, a love that is also manifested uh, towards one's children. Again, Paul makes it clear this love is not optional or conditioned, and this is tough, on their appearance, intelligence, or personality. Too often you see in a family, wow, I love that one more because I like that one more, or that one, that one appeals to me. And we make a huge mistake in gearing our love based on how someone may connect with us. The fact is, your kids are going to be different. They're going to act and respond differently. You are called to love them unconditionally. And that unconditional love oftentimes we forget means not conditioned on their personality, not conditioned on their intellect, not conditioned on how irritating they are, not conditioned on that you like their hair versus the other kid's hair. It's not conditioned on anything. You're to love them. As one writer notes, a call to love in a positive yet not indulgent manner. This love is not giving a child anything they want. But I want to zero us in here for a moment because this is the critical part. It's a love focused on an eternal perspective. To put the weight in here, MacArthur notes, love's main objective from a parent is to lead their children to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You love your children? Look at how you're leading them to their Savior. That's love. The call of love is to love in every way, practical, physical, social, moral, and spiritual. It is a love that has no limit or condition and demands much from a wife and mom, yet it is the lead-off characteristic. Paul says, obviously in the context of be sober, of being well-behaved, of being disciplined, I need you to teach them to love, a love that has my purpose behind it. They're going to love their husbands because it's going to be an example to the world around them as they show an, an unlimited, unconditioned love there. But he's zeroing in on the children saying, I love them with that mindset in front of them. It's followed by being discreet, it says, which is the word for self-controlled. Uh, with the older men, it was the word sober. Uh, it's meaning that a person is clear-headed and thoughtful. Uh, this characteristic actually is emphasized for every age bracket from Older men to older women to younger women, younger men. Uh, it is the exact same word in Greek. So as you're reading through in Greek, same word. I'm not sure why they chose to put discreet instead of sober here or why they chose to use grave instead of something else. Uh, the fact of the matter is it's the exact same Greek word, all the same uh, connotations, and it means self-controlled. They're to be self-controlled. 
They're clear-headed and thoughtful. They're biblically self-controlled. And then they're also called to be chaste, meaning they are pure. This is referring specifically to moral purity and in the context of marriage, marital faithfulness. It's a concept that was not necessarily the norm during that time. Uh, I share this because sometimes we, we sit there and we, we read this and we think, well, it was not a problem back then. It's just a problem today. That immorality is, is something that's cropped up today. I was reading through some Greek literature. This is years ago. And it referenced a faithful wife from a secular standpoint only had one extramarital relationship. The norm in the day, based on the writings, and this is not from Christian writers, the norm of the day was two to three other relationships. It was the accepted norm. I want you to understand what Paul is saying. He's saying be countercultural here. To be chaste, to be pure, was this idea that you would be set apart from what culture accepted. It wasn't taboo. It was the norm. Purity would be a consistent testimony of a different life. You would be broadcasting it out. And we always think that what we do in secret stays in secret. And we all know if we live in a small enough town that there's no secrets. You know it gets out. And so the testimony from this person would be of someone who is pure. Paul, after dealing with the sacrifice of love, emphasized toward the family. I want you to notice this is love your husband, love your children, which is all the components of the family. Then there's the call for self-control and purity, which would have brought both stability in the family and it would have brought a testimony of holiness to the world outside the family. So it would have broadcast to the world this stable unit. It also told the world that we believe in holiness as God has defined it. Now he turns his attention to the function of the home. And this is the central theme that's going to come out, calling younger women to be keepers at home. Now, I'm going to say this multiple times to the message. This has been mispreached a million times. Uh, it's important to note that if you're going to take this to mean that every woman needs to only be a housewife, that interpretation is not nestled in the Greek at all. The word keepers at home means that you're a worker at home or busy at home. The fact is the command, because it is a command, speaks to something, and this is critical it speaks to the priority of the home. As I mentioned at the beginning, everything centered for the younger women is going to be driving you to what your focus is going to be, what God has called you to do, the emphasis of your life. And it's going to be a spiritual emphasis, and it's going to be zeroed in on the home in a specific way. Younger women are to be taught to make their home. And again, I might get crucified on all ends. It's not necessarily speaking of the cooking and cleaning. So he's not saying, now you make sure you clean the house and make sure you're cooking and now you're a good keeper at home. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you need to make your home a point of primary, and that means spiritual importance. And I want us to understand the weight of this because we get, we get caught up with the physical side, and I've heard many a sermons about this. And I'm not saying it's not nice to have a clean home, it's not nice to have food cooked for you, but the fact is, we can all clean and we can all cook. Well, I can't, but I, you know, I've just proved myself incapable always. You know, just fail men over and over again, and they say, forget it, it's not worth it. Paul's not concerned with who's cooking dinner, and Paul's not concerned with who's sweeping the floor. 
So if you want to grab a biblical principle about that, then you're misusing Scripture. What Paul's concerned about, though, is something way more important than that. And I want us to understand this for women specifically, as you're looking at this, that God has given you a very direct charge for your home, and the charge is spiritual. As you look at the, the importance of your family, and he zeroes in, you love your husband and children. Why is he saying, it doesn't mean you don't love other people? No, but he's saying that your focus is now family. It's zeroed in on that. And then he becomes the keeper at home, the priority of making your home a place of spiritual impact. The idea is working in the home. And that becomes a criteria by which she and her husband would evaluate what is best to be done outside of the home. How does it affect her spiritual impact in the home? That's the evaluation. It's not evaluating whether or not the house is as clean as it should be. It's not evaluating whether or not that there's a meal that, that the husband likes or the kids like. It's evaluating what this activity outside the home will do to her impact in the home. That is the criteria. Because there is an opportunity in the home for women to have a deep spiritual impact upon their husbands and even more directly upon their children. And I hope we feel the weight. I'm not trying to remove the weight. I'm actually trying to hope we put the weight on that God has called ladies to a very specific spiritual task. And we don't convert people. We can't make that happen, but we testify and we emphasize and we teach and that is a responsibility you're given. Paul writes in another book that women are, are saved in childbearing, and people go bonkers over that. And what he, they're misinterpreting is, is the same concept he's trying to say here is that you are emphasizing your children. You're trying to reach them. You are to be a testimony to them. Instead of lighting the path everywhere, you are very much focused on the path for your family. I mention that because it's critical that we do not belittle or begrudge what is a key point of influence. Here's the sad truth. The church, not the world only, the church as a whole has abdicated too many times this influence. And you know who steps in to be the spiritual influence? The world does. They're extremely thrilled when you let go of that opportunity because they want it. They desperately want it, and they will swoop in and fill it. This impact, as you are a keeper at home, the spiritual impact, this idea of making your home a place where they learn about Christ, where they're taught about Christ, where Christ is exemplified, where it's constantly the emphasis, your priority has eternal consequences and requires a kingdom mindset. You prioritize his truth and gospel over the norm of culture and this world. I put a note in, in pencil this morning. You can be home and still not be spiritually working at home. Don't check the box because you're home. Check the box because you're a keeper of home, not there. It's not a location thing. It's a mindset and a work that takes care of it. And all of this, Paul says, to be good. That's a loaded word, right? You ever tell your kids, go be good? That's a, that's a moving standard. I might tell Clayton to be good, and in his mind, he's like, have a good time. Uh, I've done it. Uh, good has happened, Dad. It's in front of time. It was an adjective. It wasn't, wasn't a thing I was doing. It was describing how good this was. But it's a loaded word. It means generous, just, kind, friendly. In a general 
sense, in, in the Greek language, it had this idea of a positive quality to any situation. It is actually the description of a great and godly friend. It is used to describe what God is to us, goodness manifested by God in his relationship with us. And so it's not just casual word that has no meaning, but actually Paul is saying, as a younger woman, 50 and below, and and I just want to say this, if older women are teaching younger women this, they're obviously living this as well. So no one's off the hook there. And, And you dive in, it's saying, be that good person, that godly friend, that godly influence. What is the only eternal positive you can bring to any situation? Jesus Christ. It speaks to her influence over all, the broad base of it. And then Paul encapsulates the list, and this is the confronting culture. And and James did mention tag team, so I thought he could come up here and just finish the sermon from here on out. Uh, It confronts culture. By the way, there's a host of commentators that love to take this and say this is a cultural thing. Uh, It was accepted culture, and it's not the accepted culture today. That's because they are poor readers of history. This confronted culture then as it does now, and it's a calling on younger women to be obedient to their husbands or submissive. Uh, This last one carries us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Anyway, if ladies are walking out now, it looks terrible. I just want you to know that's just, it's a bad testimony if you do that. Um, But I want us to understand this because what has happened is that this has been twisted and turned in our culture and it's been painted a certain way and it looks wrong. And when I mentioned stepping on maybe a lot of toes and even on my own as I journeyed through this, Uh, It's understanding what it actually means in the context of what God is saying, and it's going to take us all the way back to the Old Testament, because understanding Genesis is what's going to help us understand what Paul is saying. But I I want us to understand that this carries us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all the way to original sin, which was the beginning of the dismantling of the home as God had designed it. This is the playground of Satan. But it's also the playground of the pagan system that seems to be playing on repeat. The roots, and you've probably heard this, of Gnosticism are found and repeated here, actually. The roots of Gnosticism begin at original sin. So it is a a teaching that's formalized in the first century, but has roots that go all the way back. And actually think, Kenny, well, Gnosticism's all over now. It's not, actually. Uh, It plays out today, and it's labeled as new spirituality which is propagated by the world's favorite TV preachers. I typically don't name names. I will, just for your sake. Joel Olstein is a self-proclaimed new spiritualist. He says, I, I am new spirituality. You know what new spirituality is? It's new age. What new age is? You can trace it back. It's, it's Gnosticism. Stephen Furtick is another one. He actually preaches about Jesus being resurrected and becoming the Holy Spirit, coming Spirit, coming down. And actually, I'm going to blame Theron on this one because he told me that. And that's actually first century Gnosticism verbatim. The theology of Gnosticism in the first century that your scripture talks about is what these guys are literally saying word for word. But Gnosticism had its roots, and we're going to talk about this, in this idea of feminism and actually this idea of gender neutrality. And the ultimate goal of Gnosticism is knowledge, and the idea is to have no gender, to to erase gender. Sound familiar to anyone in our culture? What I want you to realize is that this is no 
random old thing that needs to be said, but instead has permeated our world since the beginning of sin and had still a problem today. I call out false teachers because we've been doing that for so long, and I, I'm sorry if you listen to those two, you should probably stop because they're not teaching truth. They're actually teaching, and I want you to understand this, when we say they're teaching Gnosticism and a theology that's off, what I mean to make sure you understand it is it's an anti-Christ theology. It has always been anti-God. Its roots go back to original sin. Original sin is Satan saying to Eve, you don't need God, you're God. And by the way, Gnosticism thinks of God as his doofus that created the world and Eve has saved him from it. And so if you trace the roots of, and I'm, I'm delving into things that aren't in my notes, I'll never finish, but you, you go to Hinduism and there is 330 million gods, which cloaks the main gods, which are goddesses. And there's a, there's a perversion. When I was in India, the, the depictions of the statues were perverse, but also they're always crushing someone. They're always stepping on someone. They're always dominating someone else. And it, it had a grossness to it. And they even talked about it with the pastors. And you have to be very careful in India because you go to prison if you mention anything specific to it. But it has its roots in Gnosticism. And I'm not saying these people that speak this, and those are not just the only two. I list two of the favorites, and they're very good speakers, by the way, charismatic. But you might as well turn on the TV. Just be careful what you're listening to and what you're reading. Because time doesn't allow me to trace all of the roots and branches of this problem But it's helpful to see that this world's current ideology goes all the way back to the consequences of original rebellion. And you might wonder, and I'll get to this, why is this important? Because this has built a framework from which we misinterpret what Paul is saying. So if you look at this worldly feminism, which sees full play in our current identity culture and the drive to erase the distinction of male and female, and worldly chauvinism resulted from the fall. Worldly feminism, which it is worldly, and worldly chauvinism is a result of the fall. And you understand that uh, that root is there, and it's played havoc ever since. I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis 3.16, which says this. Unto the woman, he said, and this is judgment coming, consequence, after the fall. It says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children." And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, this verse has been misapplied in both ways, uh, for feminism and chauvinism. There's been an erasure of what's taking place. And here's why it has, and, and you may have heard many sermons from this, and I'm afraid that they most likely were mispreached. This thrills Satan because it's exactly what he wants. This, I want you to understand this, and I highlight it, this is not a statement of what should be. And that's how it's been preached oftentimes. See, the woman should have her desire for her husband, and he should rule over her. That's what God said. Well, then you're taking the verse completely out of context. That's not what God is saying. God is telling them that this is a consequence of the sin that they just engaged in. Notice the reference to child, childbearing and children. What are children in Scripture? They're called a blessing. It is one of the greatest blessings God gives us on earth. It is in fulfillment of His command to be what? Fruitful and multiply 
But now it's become possibly one of the most consistently painful processes for the mother physically, but also mentally and emotionally, and it pulls in the father as well. For instance, the loss of babies and moms at birth has recently been stemmed in the past 100 years. You read history, and it seems like almost 50% of babies passed away, and it's almost 25% of moms were lost in childbirth. What does that loss do? Well, it's the emotional and mental pain for father and mother. And think of the physical act of giving birth. Again, only recently has there been effective ways of reducing the pain. And let's be honest, I'm guessing most times it doesn't work. Uh, And I'm not a lady and I can't speak to it. The toll on the body is undeniable. The physical pain of bearing a child is still somewhat incomparable. And yes, men, that means it doesn't feel like kidney stones. I just want to get that out of your mind. Don't even think that thought. You think that thought, you're going to pay for it, and I'm not helping you out, all right? Erase it, right? Incomparable. There it sits. The effect on a lady's body afterward, both physically, hormonally, and often mentally, cannot be undermined. Why do I tell you that? That verse is one sentence. It says, your pain will be increased in childbirth and conception and sorrow you'll bring forth children. And in English, it's a semicolon. It's all one sentence. He doesn't suddenly switch and say, oh, and by the way, this is how it should be. I want you to grab the context because this is what's been distorted to then misapply what it means to submit. The effect is there, so in light of the consequence, the pain and suffering in childbearing, we must understand that the remainder of the verse is also a consequence of the fall and points to now the potential tension in the family relationship. Eve, created equally but with different function to Adam, will now desire his role. I know it inflates male ego for them to read, his desire shall be to thy husband, but it's not referencing wanting him. Instead, it's referencing wanting his role, and his role is the biblical headship of the family. What the fall created is is this idea that the wife would want what this husband was rightfully given by God to be, to be the head of the home. Oftentimes, you'll see it translated, and her desire is contrary to her husband. And it's not that there's a mix-up in her. It's a different Hebrew word with different texts. It's the same Hebrew word. The point is, and what they're trying to do in that translation, is to tell you that she wants, not him, she wants his role, what he is supposed to do. And sin corrupts the man as well. The verse closes with, he shall rule over you. Now again, keep this verse in context. This is a consequence of the fall. This is not how it's supposed to be. If you dig into the words, you go back to another word of rule or dominion. You go back to Genesis 1.28, before the fall. And what you have is he says you're to, to have dominion over the animals. It's a word for rule or reign. That word is different than the word that's used here. As one writer notes, the definition of the word used here, makal, is a new despotic kind of authoritarianism that was not in God's original plan for man's headship. When it says man will rule over you, it says that in the consequence of the fall, women are going to want the headship that the man was given by God, designed by God to have, biblical headship in the right context. And that man is going to be a dictator over their wife. They're going to do what God had not commanded them to do. The type of headship sadly, that's often depicted by certain preachers, is not what God intended. It is actually a consequence of the fall. Just like 
feminism and painful childbirth in all its facets. It is a fallout from the fall. Why do I go to this level of detail? Because this concept irritates our original sin, and Satan would love nothing more than for us to place this command in the caricature of what sin has created of submission. I was just at King's Dominion, which I've realized I'm too old to ride rides. Um, I still have eye pain, and I think I'm going to throw up. So, and I love roller coasters, but I got on a ride with Trenton, and I thought I, I got in, and, and I'm, I'm not ever going to show fear. I mean, I have enough male pride. And, but I'm sitting there, and he's like, yeah, and I'm like, this goes up 300 feet, which I'm fine with. I know I'm not falling out, but I'm like, it's dropping, and my stomach is no longer turning. It just, I go down a hill, and it just floats, and I'm sitting there in fear. I say that because I was at a, a theme park, and you know, they do those characters, right? They draw a picture, and I've always thought, man, I wonder what they'd make me look like, but I thought, well, probably best not to find out, but uh, um, <laughs> not going to be good. But what do they do, right? They take a feature and they exaggerate it, and it makes it something that seems to look like you, but it's a twisted or exaggerated form. I say that because we have, both for male and female, we have twisted what we're supposed to be, and nothing godly comes from that. So I wanted to give you the context of Genesis 3.16, so you understood that God is not orchestrated for the man to be the dictator, because that is actually chauvinism and it's actually the consequence of sin. I want to make sure you're clear that the idea of feminism and women empowerment and liberation and all that stuff is also part of the fall, and, and we have this situation. Now we come back with the context of God's Word, which, by the way, Paul would have had God's Word, and the God's Word he had would have been the Old Testament. As he's teaching, he says, for women, wives, to be obedient to their own husbands— and now let's apply that in light of God's truth that we know from Genesis 3.16. First, this is not a statement of inequality. We need to know that. Paul makes clear in all his letters that there is equality in Christ. And the reality of that is it's a basic premise of the Christian faith. The early church knew that. Paul was not trying to make women unequal to men. He wasn't lowering anybody. That was a known thing. That's not known today, sadly, because... Mankind, humankind, has misinterpreted God's Word so often that we've built the character, this exaggeration that's not real. What this is also not is a statement that every woman is obedient to every man. Make that note. That premise is a result of chauvinism because we want to rule. We're dictators. We have control. And so everyone must obey us. Absolutely not. It's not talking about that. I want to remind you, what is Paul's emphasis? The home, the family, because what the instruction is to the younger women is this prioritizing of the home from a spiritual standpoint. What it is, is a call to how God designed the family to function without the exaggeration of society's perception overlaid over it. God designed the husband to function as the head of the home. What does that mean? And, and think of it mainly from a spiritual standpoint. It's a role of protection, provision, and sacrifice. And it's a spiritual role that too many believing husbands have neglected. So to put a little, you're like, wait a second, Kenny, you've been preaching at the women. There's my shot at the men for a moment there. God designed the wife to submit to that biblical headship to flourish in that environment of protection, provision, and sacrifice as she executes what Paul has just stated earlier. 
What is she to do? Love for husband and children, a functional love that points constantly to Christ. The wife is to be a spiritual influence on both of them. Self-control, pure and good, as Christ showed goodness and someone who prioritizes the home, specifically in the area of spiritual impact, often most seen in the influence in shaping her children's spiritual lives. The husband as head should create the environment which allows the wife to focus on the spiritual impact in the home collectively. When the husband abdicates his role, when he doesn't function as a spiritual head, he leaves an opening and makes it more difficult for the woman then to emphasize what she's supposed to do, which is Paul's calling the children and the home. It's the guy guarding the door, so to speak, so that the home can be taken care of, and you're working together. And what is here is the fulfilling of these equal yet different roles requires, as MacArthur notes, a manifestation of grace in Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit. It takes his work in us so that we fulfill correctly his created order and thus glorify his name. As you function as God has designed us to function, it results in something that the word of God be not blasphemed, and it elevates God's word. The godly life of a woman removes barriers between the unsaved and the gospel and actually goes further. It attracts the world to our gracious Savior. As you trace back to her decision to be pure, to, to, to be a testimony, to be good, bringing a godly influence to all of life as she keeps and prioritizes the home, all of that is going to attract the world to what Christ does and changes. We do this as we live out his command in his way. I say this, and I, I mention this, but the character of the mousy wife waiting for her husband to tell her to take a step is a complete distortion of God's word and actually one depicting the sin of chauvinism. Sadly, I read about there was a preacher who was trying to show uh, and preach on submission and, and had the audacity to, to bring a woman up and have her husband say, bark like a dog, and she did. And I shared this before. That's sin to which he will be held accountable, both that preacher and the husband, for what they did. That's not submission and that's not the rule uh, and, and the headship that God has designed. It's actually sin, and they displayed sin on stage because you're not to be that. No, the picture is what God created, and the example will be seen in her spiritual influence prioritized through her home. And I'm not trying to lessen the impact of submission. I'm actually trying to take it to the right level, which is a whole heap deeper than just this physical manifestation of submitting and doing whatever you're told to do that's man being a chauvinist. That's man being a dictator. That's not right. Submitting to the headship is, and this is seen in godly submission to the spiritual headship of her husband in Christ, allows her to focus on what God has given her specifically to do. I put here, be careful to not throw away the spiritual impact God has designed for you to have. The area of most significant spiritual impact in pursuit of the lie of this world don't follow misguided preachers and teachers from either viewpoint, those promoting feminism and those promoting an unbiblical look at submission, which elevates chauvinism. The call God gives in the obedience factor is this. It says, submit to your husband as biblical head of the family. 
And in doing so, that protection, provision, and sacrifice that he is providing allows your focus to be centered on the home as you love your husband and as you love your children to draw them to Christ. That's the call that's there. Let's be sure what we see is what God has created and the eternal opportunity set before us is fulfilled specifically and uniquely. This is not to tell us that we're all the same. That's what the world says. You, you do the same function, and you have the same function, and you're the same and same, and there is no distinction. Why do they do that? Because God designed us uniquely, and he gave man a role, the husband a role to fulfill, and he gave the wife a very unique role to fulfill as well. And what happens is the world wants to erase those roles because then what, ha- what unfolds is the world gets to do what they want because you've abdicated what God has given you to do. A healthy church, and I said this two weeks ago, is filled with spiritually functioning believers at all ages and stages of life. We need everyone spiritually functioning for us to fulfill the evangelistic impact God desires from his local church. What, does, what is at risk if you don't want to follow through? What is at risk if you prefer this world's culture or this world's take on something? Whatever side you want to grab. What's at risk is you not fulfilling being the light you're called to be, that the church is rendered ineffective. And in these few verses, the impact made by those designated as the younger women is undeniable. What we see, and I want us to zero in on what I started with, is the home as a key reflector of God's light and the wife and mom as a central component to that home functioning as God designed it. Your home life can't be in shambles. Your home can't be spiritually off and then walk out and say, I'm going to go out and be a light for the Lord. What Paul is telling them is that God wants all of life, that your home is critical, that it's necessary. What is she to be doing? Displaying a functional love to all the members of the family, a love that has a redemptive focus. You're called by God to love with redemption in mind. You're self-controlled, which means you're undistracted by the trivial and living a balanced Christian life, pure in mind and action, someone that is genuinely good, bringing a godly influence into all of life's circumstances. I hope every kid here, yeah, every time I did something, my mom would remind me about God and remind me about Jesus Christ and remind me what a Christian should do. Exactly. That's what she's supposed to be doing. And you know what? When you're 40-something years old, you remember what your mom reminded you of, right? Why? That was her role. That was, that was the, to imprint in your life him, Christ. And in all, prioritizing her home, maintaining an eternal perspective and recognizing the spiritual impact of what she does all accomplished while living out God's design role for her fulfilling God's design function for her, which requires her to do or be submissive to the biblical headship of her husband. Note, husbands, this is your stop and examine moment. Do you fulfill that role? Do you provide spiritual, emotional, and physical protection? Look, how many times? Well, my wife's difficult. I, she doesn't want me. She doesn't want to submit to me. You've, you're on the wrong track, I can guarantee you. Be the biblical head of your family. Be the spiritual head of your family. Be that spiritual, emotional, and physical protection. Provide for the needs of your family. You, you are sacrificing your ease, your way, and your wants for them. 
Because it's in the context of that environment that the wife now biblically submits so as to fulfill the priority God has given to her and her home. The home created in this environment shines a gospel beacon into the world around it. It highlights the gospel and emphasizes what God has designed and what he is doing through and with his church. But here's the question, and I'm kind of bring it back to the, the, to the, question, the, the issue at hand, the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. Are we going to toss that aside, being a gospel beacon, emphasizing the home, prioritizing the home, keeping the home? Because that's what God has called you to do. He's called you to make sure that the spiritual impact in your home is settled there. That is your role. Are we going to toss that aside in pursuit of the age-old lie of Satan that was designed to be the opposite of God's plan and purpose for the family? the one that negates the truth so evident in a home functioning by his design. That lie has manifests itself as feminism, chauvinism, cloaked in paganism or Gnosticism or new spirituality. The list goes on. It's going to keep on changing, but the purpose is the same. Their attempt is to erase God's imprint, to undermine the family, to tempt women and men even to neglect what should be their priority for a cheap trinket and some supposed empowerment. By the way, if you're going to something that's going to be empowering you, you might want to have a cautionary tale because here's the reality. That's not what God's design is. Your role is to glorify him. Your role is to highlight his gospel truth. And you have, and we have specific functions we should do. But here's the big question that comes up in this. Well, actually before that, God's design, I just want to say this for a woman is unique. It's gifted you're gifted and created with purpose, and his beautiful plan for their lives will be used to draw his children to him. I want us to hear that. As you look at what God's called you to do, and, and we have a society that, that bucks against it, we have biblical commentators that write against it. And they write against it in error. But God has orchestrated his plan for your life and functions so that you're used by him to draw his children to him bringing glory to God as only you can in his perfect design. But this is the big question that really confronts us. Is his plan and his design what you want? Is his plan and his design what you are seeking? It has to be if we're going to be a healthy church making his evangelistic impact in our community and beyond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank for the opportunity we have to dive into your word and and we encounter topics that are countercultural, uh, that have sadly been mistaught through, through years. They've been twisted and turned. They've, they've lacked the discipline to dive into God's Word and to understand exactly what you're saying. But as we understand what Paul writes and what he, what he teaches as he works from uh, the Scriptures, Old Testament Scriptures, as he highlights the role that's there, he's letting us see, he's letting us know what the priority is needs to be, and you've emphasized the home, and you've let us know what it takes from the wife and mom. It takes uh, a focused energy. It takes someone willing to set aside what the world may think is best for what God has proven is best. It's understanding the eternal impact of zeroing in on our home of having a redemptive love for her family, of making that family the priority to have that spiritual keeping at home, to recognize her responsibility.
We'll get to the men where they have to uh, be the head and function correctly to create the environment of protection and provision and sacrifice. However, as the wife functions in the home, as she does what God has called her to do, that light is shined brightly in the community around her and around her family. Help us to seek your plan. Help us to submit to your plan and to do what you've called us to do, not in an unbiblical way, but to follow Scripture and what you've shown us. To be families that our community can look in and say, Christ rules in that household. That they're a light for the gospel. Help us to be that. Help us to shine the light in the community around us and around the world. In your precious and holy name, amen.